Welcome to Real World Talk, a podcast that brings together healthcare leaders to discuss the importance of real world data in accelerating drug development and improving cancer care. Real World Talk is brought to you by CODA, a company that combines oncology expertise with advanced technology and analytics to create clarity from fragmented and often inaccessible real-world data. My name is Kevin Keough, and I'll be today's host. In this episode, I have Dr. C.K. Wang and Ming He with us. C.K. is the Chief Medical Officer at CODA, and Ming He is the Senior Medical Director. C.K. and Ming, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Kevin, for having us. Hi, Kevin. Uh, you both have new roles at CODA. Uh, it's been great having you aboard. I'd love to know a little bit more, if you could tell us a little bit more about those roles, um, your individual backgrounds, and actually how you came to know about CODA and join us. Sure. I am a medical oncologist uh, by training, and I actually came to CODA about a year and a half ago by way of IBM Watson Health. I was in private practice in the Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas area for about 11 years before leaving about three years ago to join IBM Watson Health. And when I was at IBM, I saw the potential of real-world data and became very interested in learning more about the field. And I was quite lucky that CODA was searching for its next senior medical director at the time, and I was ready for a change. And everything aligned, and I was fortunate enough to land the position. And since then, I've assumed the role of chief medical officer, and I have been in this role for about uh, almost going on four months now. And my role, I guess, as the title suggests, deals with the medical and scientific operations here at CODA. And along with Ming, we head up a team of approximately 10 healthcare professionals that's responsible for many functions, including defining the disease-specific uh, elements for abstraction, overseeing our abstractor training, testing CODA's abstraction platform, developing and overseeing CODA's QA mechanism, and also spearheading CODA's research program. And lastly, we serve as the medical experts in the development of CODA's provider tool uh, called RWA, and also in interactions with potential and established clients and partners. So I guess you can call us the internal and external medical voices of the company. That's for sure. I certainly agree with that. And, and Ming, could you just tell us a bit of your background? Well, for everyone who listened to CK's background, you pretty much have my background as well. I also came to CODA by way of IBM Watson Health, and I've been with CODA for about a little over a month now. So previous to IBM Watson, I was also in private practice in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. My background is hematology oncology. So essentially, I joined IBM simply because I was interested in seeing what technology can provide for physicians, researchers, and anything that can sort of make whatever they're doing a little bit easier to maybe help them along with all the different tasks and all the knowledge that they have to, I guess, ingest and comprehend. So what also led me to CODA was essentially seeing the application of real-world data in research and how valuable it is. 
and how important it is to maintain the integrity and the quality of that data. So I think as senior medical director, um, that's probably one of my primary focuses is just to make sure we always provide good quality data that any researcher or physician can look at and understand and it meets their needs and provides a very clear picture of what we are giving and what we are doing. Great. Thank you for that. Well, I know for one, whenever we work together, I come away with a wealth of knowledge. So it's great having you both part of the team. And I think we'll learn a lot over the course of this podcast today. So shifting to current events, the world of precision medicine means that drugs are targeting a smaller and smaller population. Competition for trial participants is stiff and access to patients is difficult. COVID-19 is an extreme example of this. It's how one curveball can throw the entire system into what only can be described as chaos. What does this mean for clinical development and to what extent can real-world data be a solution? Sure. Kevin, this is a, is a great question. As you highlighted, you know, the COVID pandemic has essentially disrupted uh, the well-established cl- clinical trial mechanism, I would say, at every level. You know, for the actively accruing trials, patient enrollment has declined tremendously as inpatient office visits have declined precipitously. For those patients who are already enrolled in a clinical trial, the ongoing monitoring had to be adapted to be done remotely, which many sponsors were not prepared to do at, at, the, at the start uh, of this COVID pandemic. And I would say that most importantly, many, if not most trials that were on the verge of launching when the pandemic hit were essentially postponed with many sponsors delaying their trial launch until, you know, 2021. But I would say that, you know, focusing specifically on COVID itself, we have seen uh, federal groups such as the CDC and FDA turning to real-world data during this time period to better understand this disease and its real-world treatment, as well as real-world patient outcome. And from my perspective, this has really brought real-world data to the forefront of the drug development, the drug research world, which in my opinion has been great for the field. Yeah, I think I think it's a time that everyone is is frantically searching for answers and, and trying to document as much as from this experience as possible. And CK, you've kind of alluded to this in your previous response. And, and Ming, I think you can expand upon this. I know you both are still practicing in a limited fashion. While in practice and treating cancer patients during this time, what difficulties have you encountered in terms of documenting and tracking a uh, patient's medical record? So yeah, Kevin, just a little bit of background. When I joined IBM and have continued on during my time at CODA, I also joined faculty at UT Southwestern. So pretty much we, about three and a half days per month, I go and attend clinic at UT Southwestern Medical School and I teach the fellows. So see patients together with them. During this period, there has been a lot of changes in the protocol for the clinic, simply because, especially for training programs, there's often large groupings of people in the same space. And that's really the only way it works in teaching environments. Um, It's very difficult to teach from the next room over. So I suppose the 
most difficult thing that it has posed in this academic environment is essentially the inability to communicate effectively with other staff members and unfortunately also with our patients. Given that part of our academic training occurs at the county hospital, we have a huge number of patients who either do not have access to technology because of their lack of resources or who do not understand and cannot use technology because of their background or both. So it has been very difficult to provide, I guess, the same effectiveness level that we have been able to in person simply because of the the difficulty in communication. So we're kind of having to fill in the gaps the best that we can based on their history and sort of based on what we have recorded that has happened to them before. CK, anything to add there from what you've been seeing from a, a treatment standpoint in clinic? No, I mean, I think that I think what Ming has highlighted, I think, has been the experience of many providers, not just throughout this region, but throughout this country and also around the world. You know, unlike Ming, I I have my own clinic. I go in right now, currently just once a month. It's what I call my continuity clinic of cancer survivors. So I've had the luxury of being able to postpone uh, these clinic visits. And I actually have not been in clinic for the last two months. And I finally decided to reach out to my patients by phone just about a, just about a week ago now to, to, to catch up, so to speak, on, on their clinic visits. But I, I have the luxury of doing that. I know that many providers don't. And as a result, many patient care is being delayed Therefore, I do believe that it will lead to some fragmentation in care, as well as fragmentation in their clinical documentation as well. Interesting. Just looking forward, and I don't know if that's possible to do, just given where we are today, but do you think there would be any kind of think tanks or, or kind of brainstorm sessions to put forward any solutions to address the gaps in data that will exist from a physician standpoint? You know, Kevin, I, so this is a fascinating question, right? So the answer to your question is, I'm, I'm sure there will be, right? But I think arising from this gap is the concern of the potential long-term or short to long-term impact of this disruption in patient care and patient outcome, ultimately. We, we do know that there are reports as the shutdown started approximately two, maybe three months ago, depending on which region of, of the world uh, or country that you're in, is that all screening, cancer screening per se, stopped. And that, as we alluded to before, that, that patient visits, in-person visits to providers fell precipitously as well. Now, what I anticipate, and I think what many experts anticipate and are concerned, is the fact that this drop-off in screening and provider visits is that it will lead to potentially worse outcome, worse cancer outcome in the near future, as patients are not being screened and therefore early disease where cancer may not be detected in a timely fashion. And for those patients who were unfortunately diagnosed with cancer right before the start of the pandemic, 
is that their care may not be in accordance to the best standard of care. And we've heard many stories of patients not being able to receive surgery for their cancer because it is not considered urgent. Therefore, oncologists have been forced to come up with these alternate bridging and unproven therapies to try to get their patients uh, to surgery. You know, these are unproven, as I highlighted, and we really don't know what the ramifications and what the outcome is going to be uh, for these patients as a result. But it's also interesting times because it's almost pressure testing a concept, right? That this may be the right way to treat patients, uh, but we will never know. And, and I think that there is a lot of concern, a lot of discussion out there in terms of what may be coming down, you know, around the corner and, and, and I'm sure that there will be a lot of think tanks trying to figure out how to best tackle this. Ming, and you're seeing the same sort of trend from, from the setting you're in as well? Yes, definitely. There is a lot of new protocols that are just being made as we go because a situation like this has not occurred in the technological age, right? So traditionally, we have always wanted to essentially do, you know, the laying on of hands. We want to see our patients in person. So we don't, we didn't have any protocols in place, but I think every institution is just sort of making it up as needed as we go along, because unfortunately, I don't think COVID-19 is going to disappear anytime soon. I think we're going to be in this sort of situation, even if not as severe for quite a long time to come. So hopefully with all the experiences that the different institutions have had, eventually that we will develop sort of a coherent protocol uh, relying more on telemedicine and giving physicians more standard guidance of what to do in these situations because certainly everyone is just doing the best they can and it's all a little bit different depending on where you are. All right. Thank you both. Through our work together, I've heard you both talk about the complexity of each cancer. We've seen this firsthand in the Oncology 101 sessions and also just working side by side on these projects. And something that's been mentioned multiple times is the thought that it's no longer feasible to just be a general oncologist. Can you both elaborate on on this and, and how the impact of real world data curation could be impacted? Sure, Kevin. I think I'll take the f- first step at this because I feel that that sentiment came from me. So using myself as an example, I started my career as a general oncologist and I was fortunate enough in about 2012 to transition to a, to a specialty or specialized practice where I focus on the genital urinary cancers. And the reason what prompted me to do that was the fact that at that time I I saw just around just on the horizon at that time a potential explosion in cancer research, hence drug approvals, and felt that that patient care was best delivered in a specialized fashion. And I'll say that over the past five years. Looking back, you know, we've seen annual cancer drug approvals by the FDA, you know, skyrocket and currently consistently run in the low 20s per year. And this is in stark contrast to just 10 years ago when the number was relatively stable, I think, running around five to six agents per year that were being FDA approved. So 
you know, coupled with this rapid explosion of therapeutics was that in the last five to six years, there's been uh, ever increasing needs or demands when it comes to patient care, uh, including implementing psychosocial screening, survivorship planning, and not to mention all the uh, burden of the clinical documentation that is needed. And it was my opinion and still remains my opinion that cancer care and delivery has become much, much more complicated in this past decade. Hence the reason for, for my comment. And I will tell you that I am constantly you know, amazed by all my colleagues who still practice general oncology because you know, I stopped doing so over eight years ago. Now, I know, Ming, you've had a very uh, different experience you know, than me. And uh, so and I, I would love to hear you know, what your thoughts about what I just said. So I would actually agree with you. And I will say that this is part of the reason, more of a personal reason why I joined CODA. So there are most oncologists these days are still general oncologists and they do a fantastic job, but there has definitely been a trend over the last decade since I finished fellowship of oncologists referring to oncologists, meaning that patients with more complicated scenarios are referred to a tertiary center. So they're referred by a general oncologist to a specialist oncologist. So that practice, I think, is more common now than ever before, and that's probably a trend that will continue. Oncology have always been a very protocolized um, form of practice. You can't just randomly do whatever you want to. You have to follow a certain standard of care. And like CK said, maybe 10 years ago, we just didn't have that many choices. You get a new diagnosis. Maybe there's a couple of things to choose from. You look at the patient, make your best judgment. But now that same patient has 10 different choices in the same line of therapy. So a lot of doctors are turning to their colleagues and asking, with this patient, with these characteristics, with these 10 choices, what are you using first? What are you doing? So the doctors in the larger centers in the larger cities have the luxury of tumor board and previously only zebra unicorn cases were presented at tumor board. But now it's the general standard of practice that most new diagnosed patients are presented at tumor board. And it's simply to seek a consensus to make sure that your colleagues agree with the decisions that you've made within these guidelines. So for the doctors that are out there in the community, the smaller communities, maybe that don't have access to tumor board, maybe they're the only one in their town or their colleagues are far away, it would be invaluable for them to have access just to see for the same type of patient in this type of situation, what are their colleagues doing, either in their area or maybe even across the, the whole entire country. It offers definitely validation for their decisions and it kind of helps it, I believe it will help them to like keep up with the trends, with the certain trends of care, the direction that our standard is going. So data is extremely helpful and I think would be is only going to become more helpful because targeted therapy and new targets coming out, that's definitely not going to change, which is good, right? We want that to continue. Absolutely. Kevin, and I think to your follow-up question is, you know, how does this practice model impact, I guess, how we curate data here at CODA. You know, we, we curate each disease as its own specialized entity, right? We, we have what we call a disease-specific data dictionary that outlines all the specific elements that we capture for a specific disease. We don't have what I would call a pan-cancer type of data dictionary. Uh, that said, 
many, many basic elements are shared through all different cancers, right? But we haven't explored how to capture across different diseases at the same time. Although I do believe that this is something that we will change to in the very near future, because I do believe that around the corner, on the horizon, is the fact that cancer will not necessarily be thought of as where they actually originate the way they are today, but rather be thought of and grouped by the specific biomarkers that drives the disease itself. So the concept then obviously will be different at that time. And, uh, and we would have to change our, our data curation to meet that need. That's a great look ahead. Just being in the space for as long as you have been, could you just elaborate on the challenges in creating uh, real-world data from the perspective of an oncologist? So being in the practice, seeing the field of real-world data grow, become more influential, and kind of uh, predicting the challenges, I guess, from your from your seat. Yeah, it's been a very interesting journey, you know, being on both ends. Uh, of the spectrum, so to speak, in one hand, right, generating all this real world data, and on the other hand, trying to make sense of it all. I would say that most clinicians, as part of their regular day, really don't think about what they're creating and don't think much about the data that they are entering into their medical record system. They see it as a necessity to see that patient as a necessity to getting paid. I mean, that's essentially what clinicians document for, right? They're not documenting so that someone could derive really much insight from it. And therefore, I do believe that it leads to the issues and some of the problems that we run into when we are curating all that data. So right now, today, as we speak, there are not many medical record systems that require physicians to enter data sets in a specific way, right? I would tell the story all the time is the fact that the way I document is extremely different than the other doctors in my practice. I know a breast specialist in my practice who never dictated incomplete sentences, and she used her own abbreviations that were not standard, right? So how do you curate data and standardize data when the data set from where it comes from does not conform to any standard? And I think that that is a huge challenge that we have. And now being on the other side and seeing the type of data that's coming across, you know, it, 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 makes, me, it makes me chuckle many times. And sometimes I'm, I'm quite aghast, so to speak, by what I'm seeing. It has been a very, very interesting experience. And I, I do think, though, that the field will slowly move to a more standardized method and format of clinical documentation going forward. I know, Ming, you, you've been only at CODA for uh, a little over a month now, but I think you've seen plenty of what I'm talking about, right? Definitely. So I will say that I totally agree with you that I also believe part of the problem that contributes to the variations in physician documentation and the difficulty of getting structured data from it is the way that the EMRs are built. Um, they are built for billing purposes. There's, I think there are very few physicians who would argue with that statement. That is the origin of EMRs. They were built as a billing tool. And then later they're like, oh, we should organize the clinical documentation area of it too. So I am 
kind of optimistic. <laughs> I have noticed in reviewing our data that the newer data curated within the recent years um, tend to be tend to be more organized. The documentation tend to be a little bit easier. There's not as many questions that we need to really dig um, dig for the answer. So, and like CK said, I believe that because EMRs now, there's an importance that it also allows physicians to easily document that they are following the standard of care. Hopefully EMRs will also be reorganized in a way that's easier for physicians to document the clinical portion and not just, I've hit all the check marks, so my billing department can now submit it, right? Because that, that is all it was in the beginning. And now currently all the doctors that I would say graduated within the last 10 years grew up so to say, with an EMR. So they are used to it. They're used to the way how to document with it. So hopefully this will make our jobs a little bit easier going forward. This has been super informative and I, I thank you both for the time. I hope the next time we do this, we're in the same room or at the same table sharing what may be the same microphone here. So we've come away with just a wider perspective on both the current day's events, but also the wider field of real world data. So I really appreciate you both being here today and cutting the ribbon on the Real World Talk podcast. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks, Kevin, for having us. Great. Be well. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Real World Talk. For more episodes and to understand how we can all bring clarity to cancer care using real-world data, please visit us at CodaHealthcare.com. We look forward to having you next time on Real World Talk.